Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. More than 400 wildfires are raging across Canada with the most severe threats in Quebec and Alberta. Fires forced the evacuation of around 6,500 people from indigenous communities. It's also destroyed thousands of square miles of forest. Today we'll check in with the ongoing First Nations emergency response. We'll also look into factors contributing to what some experts warn could be the worst wildfire season in Canada to date. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Tribes and nonprofit groups across Alaska have a nervous eye on the U.S. Supreme Court, a decision on Holland versus Brackeen, a case that could potentially overturn the Indian Child Welfare Act, is expected this month. The states of Texas, Louisiana, and Indiana, along with individuals, have been fighting to overturn ICWA, claiming it's unconstitutional. Alex Clayhorn, a senior legal policy director for the Alaska Native Justice Center, says ICWA has, for more than 40 years, been a tool that tribes have used to protect Native children to make sure they're placed in extended families where possible. Clayhorn says ICWA was created to prevent the widespread removal of Indian children from their tribes. He says the arguments made by the lawsuit that ICWA is race-based are deeply flawed. It is clearly recognized and has been recognized for many years that that relationship is a political one. And what some of the arguments are attempting to do is to reduce it to a racial recognition and therefore under some sort of equal protection analysis. Claycorn says ICWA provides guidance for how states should interact with tribes and guarantees their involvement in protecting the best interests of Indian children. Jim LaBelle, an Alaska Native boarding school survivor and president of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, says he and his brother were sent to boarding schools where they suffered abuse. Two other brothers and a sister were adopted out to non-Indian families, and LaBelle did not find out about what happened to them until well into adulthood. He says had ICWA been the law of the land, his brothers and sister might have been able to have at least maintained contact. They would have been placed in either relatives' homes or, or at least in the tribal community my mother came from. LaBelle feels that if the U.S. Supreme Court does not uphold tribal authority to intervene in adoption cases, the abuses of the past will return. He says it will also open the door to weakening tribal sovereignty. A trial over new North Dakota legislative districts began this week in federal court in Fargo. The Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, Spirit Lake Tribe, and three Native voters are challenging the map's compliance with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The plaintiffs allege the state legislature drew legislative districts which dilute the Native vote. The Native American Rights Fund is representing the tribes and voters. A First Nations chief in Ontario is appealing to three Canadian hockey stars to stop appearing for online gaming ads. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, she says she's concerned about the message they're sending to Indigenous youth. Hockey stars Wayne Gretzky, Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews are heroes to thousands of young Canadians. But recently they've been appearing in ads for online gambling. And those ads are, to some experts, getting out of control in Canada. It's difficult to watch any sports without seeing some of these ads. Now, in an open letter, Kelly LaRocca, the chief of the Mississaugas of Scugog Island First Nation, northeast of Toronto, wants those hockey stars to stop because of the influence they have on Indigenous youth. 
I think that they're being told that, that it's okay to just pick up and gamble whenever you feel like it. I guess I hope that they stand, stand down from advertising iGaming because they have an immense amount of influence and uh, again, our, our youth look up to them. As adults, we look up to them. We remember the, the good feeling of watching them play hockey and the delight of the sport. And I just think it's, it's just disappointing that they're taking part in this activity. A year ago, Ontario allowed the first regulated internet gambling market in Canada. It means that anyone, any age, can place a bet. The Gaming Association has argued that regulated gambling is safer than illegal sites. But Ontario's Alcohol and Gaming Commission is now considering a ban on the use of athletes and celebrities in internet gambling ads and marketing. That decision has not yet been made. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America calling. The wildfires in Canada are doing more than just sending the heavy smoke you might have seen recently in photos from New York City. Many indigenous communities remain in harm's way as more than 450 wildfires burn across the country. Less than half are under control. The wildfire season is off to a troubling start, and Canadian officials say signs point to continued and even record-breaking destruction from fires throughout the summer. The CBC reports as many as 14,000 people have been evacuated and the far-reaching smoke creates serious health threats. Indigenous communities are hit hard by wildfires and have limited resources to cope. We'll take a look at the current fire threat on our show today, and you can join the discussion. Are you worried about wildfires this summer? Let us know. 1-800-996-2848. We've got two guests on our show today, and speaking with us first from Stony Plain, Alberta, is Brandy Morin. She's a journalist and author. She's Cree, Iroquois, and French. Brandy, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you for having me. And speaking with us from Rocky Mountain House, also known as Treaty 6 Territory in Alberta, Canada, is Amy Cardinal Christensen. She's an Indigenous fire specialist with Parks Canada, and she is Métis. Amy, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Brandy, I'd like to start with you today, and can you give us the latest on these wildfires in Canada? What Indigenous communities are currently in danger, or who might be soon? Yeah, so, um, you know, these wildfires have been happening specifically in Alberta for several weeks. They started towards the end of April, uh, beginning of May, and um, there were several uh, Métis settlements and First Nations here in Alberta that were evacuated. Um, the Paddle Prairie Métis settlement um, 
um, was really, really hit hard. They lost dozens of of their homes there. Um, you know, there are First Nations in Manitoba that, you know, have been evacuated that are still struggling with wildfires. And um, in northern Alberta, in Fort Chippewan, which is um, about three hours north of Fort McMurray, and it's only accessible by boat or plane. And so they, their community was completely evacuated uh, about a week and a half ago. And it's uh, undetermined at this point when it will be safe enough for them to return. Um, there are literally um, hundreds of wildfires that are burning across the country and hundreds that are out of control. So it's kind of hard to keep track as to who is and, and isn't affected. But most of these wildfires happen in these remote areas where there is you know, thick brush and, and, and forest. And so that's where a lot of our reservations are located and our people are greatly impacted by it. And Brandy, how close are you to the fires? Are, are you safe right now? Yeah, you know, it got pretty close a few weeks ago. There was communities about 45 minutes west of me that were being evacuated. And so we were really keeping an eye on, uh, you know, on what was happening. There was a lot of, uh, you know, smoke and really, really poor air quality uh, here. At, at one point, we had the worst air quality in the world. And right now, wildfires are burning out of control about an hour and a half or so west of me and that community it's called edson alberta it's um, a little town and they have been uh, completely evacuated so i mean it's enough distance away to be safe but it's something that could definitely develop into a threat now brandy you visited some of these communities that have been hit especially hard what all have you seen where all have you been yeah, so I I last week actually um a couple of days after the community of Fort Chippewan were evacuated to Fort McMurray I jumped in in a vehicle with um my colleague who's a photojournalist and we were on assignment for Indigenous and Ricochet Media uh, to go up there and to see how these evacuees were doing and we ended up um jumping into a boat with some volunteers from Fort Mackay First Nation that were going to deliver uh, essential supplies to some uh, members of Fort Chippewan who had fled to their cabins. So a lot of them are land users and they felt more comfortable um, evacuating to their cabins, which are you know, located um, along the Athabasca River. And so we went on that journey with them over several hours um, across the river and um, you know, at one point, I literally felt like, um, you know, I was heading into the apocalypse. Like, I have pictures, and, and the smoke is so thick, and it's so, um, you know, just eerie. And we delivered some supplies, and we got to the community of Fort Chip, and they had emergency responders there and firefighters. But there had been some community members that had volunteered to stay behind to help you know, protect the community and the, the, the leadership. So the two chiefs, well, the Mikitsu Cree chief, as well as the uh, Athabasca Chippewan chief and uh, um, the Métis chief, they, they had all stayed behind 
to help, um, you know, coordinate different efforts. So they were, you know, there was excavators in there. There was six excavators that were brought in by a barge uh, from the Northwest Territories to come in and help. Um, They were clearing brush and and literally clearing, you know, fields of forest to protect these communities from this fire. Um, One of the uh, communities in Fort Chip called Allison Bay, it was, the fire was only like three kilometers from it. And so they were doing all of this work. Plus they had firefighters on the ground. They had continual, um, you know, planes and helicopters coming and going to their small little airport and filling up at the Lake Athabasca, you know, with water to try and um, put the fire out, which was literally, um, you know, thousands of hectares. Um, And, and then they brought in the army. So, I mean, they brought this huge Hercules plane in, and it was something to see because it's this remote community, this small little airport, and, and all of these, you know, military, you know, in combat boots and gear came, you know, you know, arrived. And, you know, they're still there helping to uh, put the fire out. And so far, the community has been able to um, hold it back. Um, but it continues to burn out of control and it grew from, you know, just a few thousand hectares to now over 50,000 hectares. It's, it's just insane. That is, it just sounds absolutely insane. And, and Brandy, tell me about the mood. I mean, how are these folks holding up emotionally there at the community level? Because they might never return to their homes. Yeah. You know, there's something really unique about this community. Okay. So this community has been through a lot. A lot of our, you know, nations have, but this one, what's significant about it is it's located downstream from one of the largest oil developments in the world, which are known as the Alberta oil sands. And for decades, the oil sands have been polluting their territories. Um, There has been um, toxins that have been released in their rivers, released in their air. Their community members have for years been um, getting sick and dying from a very rare bile duct cancer. Just a couple of months ago, two major um, oil corporations um, were caught dumping um, millions and millions of liters of toxic tailings into their river. And so they're dealing with so much already. And then they have this, this wild boar, this wild boar, which in my opinion was caused by climate change because we've had unprecedented dry conditions and these, you know, these fossil fuel and industries and this oil industry contributes to that. And so they are literally being burned out, you know, mm. while, while, while dealing with these, all these other circumstances. And so this was the first time in their history that their whole community had to be evacuated. And, you know, elders being evacuated, you know, by plane. I met um, the oldest resident of Fort Chippewa. She's 93 years old. Her name was Madeline Pichet. And I, I went to see her where she was evacuated too. And, um, you know, she was crying and she was praying for her community. And everybody, you know, under stress, you have whole families that are being evacuated to these various hotels in Fort McMurray and scattered. They don't have transportation. You know, they're there, some with multiple children trying to keep them busy and, you know, deal with all of the unknowns about what's happening. But the thing is, Fort McMurray and the tribal leadership are doing a really great job of making sure that they are, you know, they have, you know, what they need and and that they are being kept busy. But uh, the people on the ground, 
when I was there, um, what I witnessed happening with the, the volunteers and the, you know, the firefighters and the police, they had whole like sprinkler systems set up on like hundreds of houses and like this, this web of connecting them everywhere to try and safeguard these places and, you know, in preparation in case the fire really, really gets closer. And even though they were very, very, you know, stressed and, 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 and burdened, um, hardly any sleep, they were doing an incredible job. It's amazing, you know, what can happen under these circumstances when people, you know, joined together. So I was impressed by that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Chief Alan Adam of the Athabasca Shippewan, like he's a, he's a very well-known uh, leader that um, is, speaks his mind and um, very respected. And he, you know, he was, he, he was breaking down and, uh, you know, I don't blame them. Right. When, when, when literally their, their livelihoods are in their, in their territories and their lands are, are on the line. Brandy, we're going to have to take a break here, but uh, when we come back, I want to ask you more about uh, what leadership, how Indigenous leaders are responding to these issues, who's particularly vocal, and and what some of the action plans are going forward. Brandy Morin, she's our reporter on the ground in Stony Plain, Alberta, and giving us an update on these severe, severe wildfires that are raging across Canada. Anybody like to give us a call right now if you've got something to share, if you've got something to add to this discussion Maybe you're familiar with how wildfires burn. Maybe you've been on a fire line yourself. You know a little bit about it. Give us a call. We want to hear from you. 1-800-996-2848. Baseball is a summer tradition in southwestern Pueblo communities. It also has an extensive history going back before the turn of the 20th century. The equipment, uniforms, and rules are similar to what we know as America's pastime, but its connection to families and tribes is unique among community baseball leagues. We'll explore Pueblo baseball in the next Native America Calling. Calling all warriors. It's time for self-care. Warriors all deserve a chance to be at their best to protect their loved ones. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash men's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Oh, You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're checking in on the wildfires in Canada today. Rural indigenous communities are among those fleeing from out-of-control fires that have already caused enormous damage. Let us know if there's a wildfire threat in your community by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with Brandy Morin, who is in Stony Plain, Alberta. And Brandy, the indigenous leaders who represent these communities that are in such dire, dire straits right now, what are they saying? What do they want? What do they need? Wow. Well, you know, the the ones that uh, specifically in Fort Chippewan, they have stayed in their community. They're on the ground, you know, working with emergency personnel, working with the the different levels of governments um, to help 
coordinate to help protect their community and help to keep their community members up to date as to the situation. Um, you know, we know that the federal government, the pro provincial government, like they're um, providing financial resources, they're providing their forestry personnel as well as the military, uh, you know, to help uh, save these communities. And, and so I think, you know, the chiefs that I spoke to there, they were, you know, pretty uh, happy with that support. And it's just a matter of, you know, coordinating, you know, that, that together. But, you know, I, I did have a conversation with Chief Fallon Adam at the Athabasca uh, Chippewan First Nation. And I, I said, you know, what about, you know, the, the causes for these wildfires? You know, we have extreme heat that we've experienced uh, like unprecedented and, and and different factors and your community is very very impacted by impacted by um you know these um extractive industries and, and impacted by climate change and he said absolutely definitely and he he talked about how the alberta government um here they have no interested in, interest in you know even helping to um you know curb some of that development, curb some of these emissions. And he said to me, you know, their let it burn policy has got to change and they are going to have to deal with us because this is happening and it's burning out of control. And so I know that, you know, when they're through this, right, when, when, when their community makes it through this and hopefully makes it through unscathed by, you know, by, by the, the fire, that they will be addressing that, um, you know, addressing uh, some of these, um, you know, these, these root causes of it, because it's, you know, it's something that uh, unfortunately will start to be our new norm moving forward. I mean, each year we have seen increases in heat, increases in uh, these wildfires, and we are on track to have the worst wildfire season that we've ever had. Let's take a caller now. We have Rich, who's listening in Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, on KYUK. Good morning, Rich. Hi, good morning. How are you? Um, I, I just, I, listening to Randy, um, you know, I, I'm from California. Uh, I've lived in Alaska, worked Department of Forestry, Wildland. I see what has happened to California with these liberal um, concepts and ideas. Um, I work in the oil field industry, and I'm in the fossil field industry. And we keep the native land up here cleaner than any place in the world. And the fact that you're blaming this, these fires on climate change is a joke. Um, I, I've worked wildland. I work in the oil field industry. Um, most governments do not forward think. I know Canada um, and California and liberals in America have have some a lot of issues going on. Uh, I, I really have a problem with this false information because uh, you need to let some of these fires burn. You need to have some forward thinking and clear, clear cut some of these areas that, that uh, endanger some of these communities. And I have okay. firsthand experience. Okay. Rich, I just want to interject here briefly. And, uh, you know, these people that are on the show today, they're not the only ones that are blaming climate change. I mean, you have Prime Minister Trudeau, who has stated that it's clear that climate change is a factor. What's your response when you hear the Prime Minister of Canada making a comment like that? 
Climate change is always a factor. It's changing constantly. It has been changing for tens of thousands of years. And, and what, what the little that we can do um, with emissions will do nothing, absolutely nothing. Okay. Um, well, Rich, China, what do you think is that, then? What do you think might be the root cause of these wildfires then in Canada right now that are burning in an unprecedented way? Well, from from sitting looking at the maps at wildfires, um, the majority of wildfires are caused by dry lightning and people. Um, are, it's a huge percentage. Dry lightning and and people are the ones who cause eighty five okay. ninety percent of wildfires. Okay. Rich, I really appreciate you calling in. We welcome all perspectives on this show. You know that. Everybody listening to this show knows that. Thanks again, Rich, for that call. Prudhoe Bay, Alaska. Brandy, I want to give you a chance to respond. Dry lightning and people. Are you okay absolutely. with that explanation? I mean, absolutely. Though, you know, those are definite causes of these fires. That's how they get going. But we have extraordinary dry conditions. And Every year, it is getting worse and worse. I mean, you know, the fact that, yes, the climate changes, and it has always changed, but it has never changed as rapidly, as consistently, and as fiercely has, as it has been doing as of late. So, um, yes, I agree. This, this particular fire in Fort Chippewan, it was started by lightning um, that, you know, ignited a fire, um, you know, away from the community. And, and I do agree, you know, people do need to, um, you know, create fire breaks and, 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 and be proactive when it, you know, around their communities. But there's only so much that can be done, especially in these remote areas, these remote communities that are not entire cities, like on reservations where, where you're surrounded by territory. You're surrounded by land, and you're not going to knock it all down. You know what I mean? Like those are those are hunting territories. Those are you know um, places that are you know ceremonial for our people. So you know those those aren't necessarily the solutions. Although preventive measures can be put in place. Well, Brandy, thank you for those insights, and uh, let's bring another voice into our conversation. Now we have a, another guest who's joining us, Kenza. LBEED. She's the Director General of Sector Operations Branch, and this is a part of the Regional Operations Sector of Indigenous Services in Canada. Kenza, welcome to our show. Hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for the invitation. Well, we've, we've got a, a really lively show already. We've got a lot of perspectives here that have been shared. Um, what can you tell us, uh, Kenza, about the nature of these fires right now and, and why they are burning so out of control? So thank you for the question. And I was actually, I, I did join this show a couple a couple minutes ago and I did heard like, you know, some comments. I think it's a mix of everything. I think climate change is one of the big elements that we need to take in consideration. Um, you know, hearing that lightning and uh, people, you know, could cause those wildfires, maybe, maybe it's one of them. But this is like what we are seeing right now. It's really unprecedented, unprecedented event and wildfire season. Like this is, it's about the heat. Like the wildfire season is just starting right now. If we look at, at our, like the assessment that we usually do on a yearly basis, the wildfire season starts only in June. What we have seen is something we have never seen in the past. 
starting and this is about like you know it's really uh dry weather and it's it did cause all those uh, devastated wildfire in many communities and in many regions. Kenza, the government relationships there in Canada with First Nations people, they're different compared to how the government interacts with tribes here in the U.S. Tell us more about the Indigenous services in Canada and how they have helped these First Nations communities respond to these wildfires. So from an emergency management perspective, our focus is really to ensure unreserved First Nation communities have the resources needed to prepare for, respond to, and recover from emergency events. I would say Indigenous Services Canada in supporting First Nations, we have to be Cognizant of our positions, uh, which you know, this means like we really have to engage with First Nation leaders and their communities to ensure that we are providing them with the resources they need, rather than the resources we need, uh, we think they need. Um, on another aspect, you know, uh, of our consultation with First Nation leaders is a traditional knowledge that and practices. Um, we need to understand what works best for communities and ensure that unreserved communities have the resources. They need to use their traditional practices and knowledge to protect their communities. Uh, we also want, like, really, you know, to make sure that moving forward, the unreserved communities have they, what they need to continue with their traditional practices. Uh, one of the things that Indigenous Services Canada, actually, we uh, do have a program that named Emergency Management Assistance Program, and it's the main program that uh, provides support to communities when they are uh, facing an emergency event, and either like an all-hazard event or a health emergency, um, a health emergency situation. So uh, Emergency Management Assistance Program is really, it's the program that provides support to First Nations on reserve communities, uh, just, you know, to make sure that they have the resources needed to stay safe. And uh, we do provide support around response and recovery and non-structural mitigation, for example. Kenza, earlier we heard from Brandy, and she described uh, some of the evacuation efforts that she's seen so far in some of these communities. And I want to ask you, are, are you satisfied with how these evacuation efforts have gone so far? Or do you think there are some improvements that need to be made? I'm going to be honest with you. You know, evacuation, it's not, it's not easy. You know, it's not something that simple. Uh, evacuation is really an ex extremely complex process in which, you know, we work with unreserved First Nation communities, the provincial or territorial government, and emergency response organizations such as CRC, uh, Canadian Red Cross, to determine what is the best. Uh, while we want to protect the community and the infrastructure, our first priority uh, will always be the health and safety of community members. Like, we do our best. We work with the leadership, with community leadership, to make sure that the evacuation is done in a right way. Uh, is it perfect? I would say, you know, maybe not. Is there any improvement? Yes, you know, because you know, evacuation is not planned. Like, evacuation, evacuation you, you face an emergency uh, situation, and then you start working on it. Uh, when, when we are evacuating a community, 
we always need to think about a variety of issues, including where can community members go and be safe? Where will they stay and what will they eat? Simply, you know, like very simple questions. But when we are evacuating a whole community, they become very difficult logistical questions. This is especially true when, you know, you don't not, you, you, you do not know how long the community will be evacuated for or if there will be a community, you know, to return to. So, like, as you know, I'm pretty sure you know, like uh, many First Nation communities have been impacted by the wildfire in Alberta. And some is going to be a long-term evacuees because they lost many homes, for example. So their recovery is going to take a long time of period. But department and other, uh, other government, uh, other, other department uh, outside of Indigenous Services Canada will be working all together to make sure that the recovery would be going well. And Kenza, how well-resourced are, are these Indigenous services? Because what's so frightening here is that what we might be seeing now is, is only the very beginning. This could get a whole lot worse throughout the remaining months of summer. So, you know, we do like, we work with First Nations uh, communities and leadership like the whole year. We try, you know, to uh, prepare, like uh, preparedness, providing funding around preparedness and prevention. Although, pre, you know, preparedness and uh, preparedness and prevention on, like, for example, for flood, it's easy to do that than for a wildfire because, as you know, like wildfire, you know, a situation like can turn out um, devastating situation in a couple of minutes. Like, for example, you can monitor, you know, a wildfire that is coming, let's say, today in a community is we are watching the situation monitoring the situation and the wildfire is far away of the community by 50 or 25 kilometers. So we work with the leadership nation. We bring all the key stakeholders that they will need to be involved on this situation. But sometimes you think that, you know, everything is going well, but if there is just a small win will come in a couple, in a fraction of a second or a minute, this situation, you know, take a matter average, and then we are dealing with a huge one. But what we do, we have like, we have, uh, we keep, we are engaging with leadership on ongoing basis, uh, trying, you know, uh, provide some support on the uh, prevention and working with them uh, to avoid any kind of situation like that. Uh, we have some other programs as such, you know, we have a Fire Smart program, which is one of way in which we help communities plan for wildfires, such as the ones that uh, actually Canada is currently dealing with. The Fire Smart program helps to build skills in on-reserve First Nation communities to prevent and prepare for wildfires. And it also uses local and traditional knowledge to improve emergency planning, preparation, and response to um, uh, to these events. Uh, we try to build some capacity within the community and, um, and working directly with, uh, with on-reserve First Nation along with other departments to coordinate a risk-based all-hazard approach for the management of emergencies on reserve. Well, Kenza, I want to thank you for, for joining us on very short notice today. And uh, I know your time is limited. So Again, really appreciate you uh, giving us some more of these insights with regard to what's happening now in Canada. Kenza 
L. B. Ed, the Director General of Sector Operations Branch, which is a regional operations uh, center for the sector of Indigenous Services Canada. So really uh, an interesting uh, governmental structure there, an entity that is working in partnership with some of these communities that we are talking about today with evacuation efforts and other other strategies to uh, reduce the impacts that some of these folks in these communities are facing. Sure would like to get some more calls going. Uh, that was a really good call we had earlier. Anybody with any insights as to what's happening in Canada or if maybe you've got your own thoughts as to what is causing uh, this rash of wildfires, unprecedented wildfires in Canada, we sure would like to hear from you. That number, Native America calling, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, we are at 1-800-996-2848. If you're a little shy to get on the phone, get on our social media, post on our Facebook page, look at our Instagram page and comment there. We'd like to do that too. We'd like our guests to engage with us in a lot of different ways. So we'll be right back. This Father's Day, you can give your dad a truly unique gift from SweetGrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at AECF.org. This is Native America Calling. We're talking about wildfires in Canada and emergency response in First Nations communities. If you're an emergency responder, how do you face the threat of wildfires? How does your tribe work with neighboring emergency response teams? Share your knowledge and insights at 1-800-996-2848. Our third guest on the show, Amy Cardinal Christensen, is up in Treaty 6 territory in Alberta, Canada, She's an Indigenous fire specialist, and she's been waiting patiently in the wings to join our conversation. Amy, you doing okay? Yeah, I'm good. It's been a really good discussion, and I always love to hear Brandy describe what she saw up there. So, Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Amy, tell us here, were these fires we're seeing now, were they predicted to happen? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, yes, all science. Um has pointed to this. Um, I think what has been more surprising is that the rate is at which this has happened. I think for some of the um, research studies that we read, it wasn't predicted until, you know, maybe 2030 or 2040, but we're really seeing an acceleration um, here, it seems. And so it just related to the one caller's point, too, about um, climate change. And, you know, I know that it's a super controversial topic right now for many, um, I personally don't believe you can believe in it or not because it's what we're seeing. But for me, what I try to do is just take the politics out of it and go spend time with elders. And especially in northern Canada, those are the ones when you speak to those elders, like they don't have a political agenda. But what they're seeing up there is that their life pathways are changing. Um, so like right now, for instance, where I am, like our raspberries have flowered a month early. Like that's very concerning. Mm. Yeah, it certainly is. Is it common, Amy, to have severe wildfires burning on, on both sides of Canada like they are now? No. So usually in Canada, we've been fortunate enough that when, you know, we've had fires in, in certain areas of Canada, so in the west or whatever, where it might be drier, it's generally been different weather conditions in other parts of Canada that don't make it as conducive to, to out-of-control wildfires. 
And so one thing that's positive then is that we're able to share resources in Canada so we can, you know, send crews from uh, provinces that aren't experiencing wildfire at the moment to help those other fires. But um, as you and Brandy mentioned earlier, right now what we're seeing is just across Canada, uh, these wildfires um, are happening kind of, yeah, throughout the country. Now, Amy, we had a caller earlier who talked about controlled burns and, and how those a little bit mentioned them. But anyway, traditional intentional burning, Native people have been doing that for <laughs> for thousands of years. How how, how does how do, how do have we, we've known this stuff for a long time? Talk about that. Yeah, so in Canada, as well as same within the States, uh, many Indigenous nations have used fire on their territory before colonization. So what would happen then is, you know, people weren't able to go a far way away, right, because they didn't have cars or planes or whatever to get the resources that they needed to survive. So what they tried to do is to promote those resources, like right around their communities or in their territory, right where they were. And one of the ways that they could do that was using fire. So by using fire, they would put mosaics on the landscape. So, you know, they might burn to have a meadow open so that you can have certain plants um, there, like certain wildlife that comes to that area. And then they'd also burn in like an older growth forest to kind of keep it healthier and remove deadfall and other things. And so at the same time that they were doing that, Indigenous people also really heavily relied on lightning-caused fires in Canada. So when those fires would come, though, they would hit these mosaics or patchworks that were on the ground from fire, and they would the fires would change intensity, right? So they would go from, like, you know, raging through an old-growth forest as a crown fire to all of a sudden hitting a meadow and then dropping down to a surface fire. And so it was a much different, um, yeah, like lightning fires, I would say, weren't as feared by nations. And, and we know that from the stories that elders share. Let's take a caller. We have Shell, who is listening on KISU up in Fort Hall, Idaho. Hello, Shell. It's been a while since you called in. Yeah, I'm a, a retired uh, firefighter. I used to lead the crews out, you know, and uh, another way the fire starts is uh, like if the fire ain't really put out, the root will burn all winter long and then come spring and summer, you know, it'll take off again. And another another reason why a fire would start was through burning embers, you know, the when when a tree crowns out high, you know, it, it the embers will uh float will go to the next uh valley and then it would skip across from valley to valley and you know burn start new fires as it goes along. Shell, I believe um, they call that crowning when they burn along the yeah, top like that. It... Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, the drier the place, you know, the easier the fire will, you know, ignite. Shell, what, do you have any, any thoughts or, or, or words for these folks up in Canada right now and what they're going through? What would you like to say to them? Uh Really, you know, like we used to just dig fire lines and kind of keep an eye on it, you know, fire behavior to see how the wind's blowing and things like that to know where, you know, the safest places would be, you know. And, you know, a road would stop it or near a a, a lake or something would stop it or slow it down. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Shell, thank you for calling. I, I really appreciate it. I always enjoy your calls. Uh, again, folks, that's Shell, Fort Hall, Idaho. And Amy, I want to ask you because what Shell describes is like a, a fire crew. And many communities down here in the States have those. Some of them are run by the BIA here. Some of them are run by tribal programs. But they're just regular folks from the community who go out there on the fire line and they, and they help fires. And is there Are there similar efforts up there in Canada with community-based crews there at the First Nations and various Métis communities and such? Yeah, so first I just want to say thanks to Shell um, for his, you know, service <laughs> with uh, firefighting. And, I mean, it's one of, I think, our most Indigenous people's involvement as firefighters is one of our most, like, underappreciated things in fire management. Um, they rarely kind of get any glory from all the hard work that they do every fire season uh, so in Canada, um, there used to be a lot more Indigenous firefighters, um, especially prior to 1990. But in 1990, what we had in Canada was where um, there was changes to fire management. So there was a lot more reliance on aviation, but also um, training standards changed. And as well, a lot of non-Indigenous people started deciding that they really liked firefighting as like a break from university. Um, it was good pay and a high adrenaline rush. And so... Um, they kind of also came into the firefighting field. So there's not as many Indigenous people involved now. There still are a lot. But what we're seeing in Canada from a recent study that we did is that many Indigenous people here are kind of kept in seasonal positions um, where they're either just on call-up, like contract crews, or, you know, only employed for three or four months. And they rarely, even though they might have 30 or 40 years experience in firefighting, they rarely move up the ranks um, into like higher decision um, making positions. So it's a huge problem that, that we see here and that we're trying to address. Mm. And I imagine there, when these crews are like temp seasonal crews like that, they, they might be harder to mobilize too, like in a severe situation, like what we're facing now might, might take more time. Yeah. And I mean, one of the issues, right, is that not many people right now want to, do a ton of training and stuff to sit, you know, and maybe get a call up for two weeks employment. So it's, um, I, I think, you know, what, what's frustrating, I think, from that study we did is just the immense knowledge that there is there in local territories. Um, and many times, you know, we heard lots of um, stories about, you know, the military, like Bradney was saying, being brought in and like um, some of them getting lost and like them having to contract these Indigenous guys to go out and like find people and um, and, and yeah, so that's happened on quite a few fires, not only the military, but in other cases, because, you know, when outsiders come in, they don't have the local understanding of the land. Well, Amy, you've also studied evacuations of First Native communities, and, and what have you learned in your research? Yeah, so I think the really important thing to point out to your listeners is that in Canada, about 5% of the population is Indigenous. Um, and probably even less than that live in Indigenous communities. So we have a lot of urban Indigenous people. Um, but despite that, about 42% of wildfire evacuees in Canada are of First Nation, are, are, are um, Indigenous people. So uh, First Nation, Métis, or Inuit. So that's like a huge disproportionate impact on a very small population base in Canada. Um, and so also what we're seeing in those communities is that there's recurrent evacuations. So, you know, they're not only getting evacuated maybe one summer. Some of them have been evacuated up to like 17 times in the last um, seven, in the last 41 years. So, that, you know, it's huge impacts on these communities where they're just constantly having to move. And I think, too, um, 
my uh, colleague at Indigenous Services Canada was pointing out that's important to mention is that in Canada, um, um, emergency management, fire management, forest management are all under provincial jurisdiction. But First Nations people and reserves are under federal jurisdiction. So the second a First Nation gets evacuated, it pulls in like a whole bunch more complexity and bureaucracy into the situation, which is very frustrating at points for communities to deal with. Amy, what are you most worried about currently with the situation we're seeing now with these fires? And then as we progress into uh, July and August and even into the fall? Yeah, so another thing, again, to point out that's really different in Canada is that we have many First Nation communities and a few Métis that are fly-in only access. So when a wildfire is threatening them or it's decided that they can evacuate, they basically need assistance to leave their community. You know, they can't just like um, throw all their stuff in a vehicle and drive away down the highway. So what happens is is that they're then reliant on um, the Department of Defense or uh, you know, the wildfire management um, agency to come in and fly them out. And many of these communities are big, like Fort Chip that Brandy was talking about. And so in another case, like with Sagamac First Nation, when they were evacuated, they basically had to boat from their reserve to the local airstrip. And then they actually ended up many people sleeping on the local airstrip while a fire was threatening their community right across um, the lake there waiting um, to be picked up and, and flown out. And another thing that happens then is that the evacuations tend to be very long. So communities that are flown out, it's not just easy to, you know, rescind the evacuation order and send them home. Um, you know, it's a big effort to put them back. And then also when they return back, return back, these communities are highly reliant on the land around them. And when that land is now burnt, their relationship completely changes with the you know, with, with the forest around them. You can't just, like, you know, go to areas you used to. Their trap line might be burnt. So it's not like the situation ends when the evacuation's over. And, Amy, what's the best way for our listeners to track these wildfires and stay up to date? Yeah, so I think one of the good ways is all the provinces kind of have apps that go up, but um, as a federal government person, I'll, I'll say that the Canadian Wildland Fire Information System interactive map, so if you Google... CWFIS interactive map. Um, you'll come on upon um, basically a, an interactive map that's for all of Canada. So you can see the hot spots, you can see the fire danger by changing layers on that map, so, and you can see estimated fire perimeters. So it really gives you a good idea of what's occurring, and you can change the date too and, and the date range. And another really important resource at the moment is a website called firesmoke.ca. Um, and so if you go on there and click on current forecast, you can really see where the smoke is at the moment, where it's sitting and where it's going to move um, predicted based on like the next 24 hours. And so that's also an important resource for you all in, in the States, because I know that a lot of the smoke is obviously not respecting borders and going to the south. Yeah, you got that right. The smoke does not does not respect the borders for sure. We're going to go ahead and share those links on, on our website at NativeAmericaCalling.com so our listeners can stay informed going forward. And Amy, uh, this is just such a such a tough time right now there uh, with these communities that we're learning about. Anything else you want to add or, or share before we wrap up our show in the next couple of minutes? 
Yeah, I just really want to commend the the local First Nations and Métis communities that have been doing such an excellent job informing their nation, their um, citizens, basically about what's been happening. Like, uh, Brandy had a great example in Fort Chip, where really the local nations there have stepped in, and like they're providing nightly updates on Facebook Live, and you know, constantly answering residents' questions. And in our work with the First Nation Wildfire Evacuation Partnership. What we found was that communication or information was a major issue, right? Like people want to know what's happening. And for many Indigenous communities, they don't get as much information, especially when like bigger population centres are threatened. So, for example, when the community of Slave Lake burned, all the media, all the reporting was about Slave Lake. But at the same time, there was about 10 different First Nations and Métis communities that were also impacted by fire who could find very little information so, yeah, local um, chiefs, emergency managers um, have really stepped up, I think, to fill that space. So that's been one really positive thing that I've been seeing this year. And Amy, are there any estimates at this point in terms of what the, the dollar amount of the damage is so far? No, I don't know yet. Mm. Well, we're definitely going to be watching this here uh, in the days and weeks to come. And this has been a a really, really insightful conversation we've had today. I appreciate all of our guests. We had Brandy Morin and Amy Cardinal Christensen, and then, of course, Kenza L.B. Ed joined us as well for First Nations wildfire updates there in Canada. And uh, anybody who would like to continue this conversation, if you didn't get a chance to call in, again, our social media channels, they go 24-7. They are always going. So if you want to comment on our Facebook page, or if you want to comment on Instagram or any of our social media platforms, the conversation keeps going long after the show ends. So again, appreciate all of our guests today and hope you'll join us again tomorrow on Native America Calling. We're going to have a conversation about the long and enduring legacy of baseball in New Mexico's Pueblo communities. Hope you can tune in. Summer vacation time is here, and you're invited to get to know Albuquerque, New Mexico. The Mariachi Spectacular Concert and Conference brings vibrant artistic, cultural, and ethnic mariachi maestros to teach and share the culture of the music and its history. Legends such as Stefan Carrillo, Mariachi Cobre, and Jose Hernandez of Sol de Mexico provide a truly unique and extraordinary music and educational experience July 12th through the 15th. The Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department supports this show. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.